0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. It's been an eventful summer, hasn't it, Suzanne?
1: Yes, Ali, we've had a couple of months off, but the world very much didn't stop. So for this first podcast of the Michaelmas term, we thought what we would do was have a quick run through of the events that have happened over the summer, many of which are still unfolding. And then we would look at the question, what is going to happen next? And we're going to do that not just by giving our predictions and forecasts, but actually by talking about the question, what's going to happen next, and looking at different ways that you might think about or answer that question when it comes to how geopolitics is going to play out. In terms of um, where we're going to focus, if we look at the, the sort of critical areas, clearly, all eyes are on the conflict in Ukraine that's happened because Russia has invaded. That's taken an unexpected turn or a turn that was unexpected by many over the summer because we've seen really significant success in Ukrainian counter-offensives, particularly in the north and east, less so in the south where it's been much slower. And then we've seen uh, there was a meeting of the shanghai cooperation organisation in samarkand in september where it became really evident i think that that putin was in difficulties he you know he wasn't getting the he, unequivocal, didn't,
0: he didn't look comfortable did he
1: he wasn't getting the unequivocal support from china that i think he would have wanted and and both china and india really cleverly saying lots of ambiguous things about respecting territorial integrity and not being a time for war Um, And as a result of that, he's clearly come back and thought, I need to do something to bring this to a head. This can't go on. And he's launched the mobilisation, which we're seeing in Russia at the moment. And it isn't at all clear how that's going to play out. And we can talk about that some more. Meanwhile, of course, in Iran, a subject much close to my
0: heart. Yes.
1: (laughs) Again, I think if you'd said in June that, by this time, at the end of September, we would be talking about protests on the streets across most cities in, in Iran, you would not have said that was going to happen,
0: or would you? No, not. Well, I mean, there's been regular protests, and I, I, I think on the one hand, you know, people ask me now, they say, you know, how uh, expected was this, how, you know, could we have predicted it? I don't think we could have accurately predicted, you know, when it was going to happen. But you know, clearly protests have been happening in the Islamic Republic quite regularly, and uh we know that um, there's been a very strict imposition of the, uh, the dress codes on, on women in particular in Iran, obviously, over the last nine months. And um, there's been some pretty heavy-handed brutality meted out to, to women. Uh, to, to my mind, it was only a matter of time before you had a fatality. But yes, the, the, the scale and, and nature of the protests has obviously taken um, all of us a little bit by surprise. And, and of course, the, the question everyone asks is, where does it go from here? You know, and This is the, the, the eternal question.
1: It is the and of course we can all remember similar occasions in the past in Iran, which have you know, everyone said, Oh, there's going to be some kind of counter revolution, I suppose That's you right. call it. Yeah. Um, and then it's been suppressed or it's petered out in, in some other way. So again it's it's always really hard to work out whether this is the turning point or whether this is just another one of the turning points which didn't turn out to be a turning point and then just carrying on with a little list um we have obviously also had escalating tensions in um well, between chi- China and Taiwan which has which That's is drawing right. in the other countries particularly Japan in in that area and attention is focusing on China now because on the 16th of October it will be the 20th national congress of the Chinese communist party so the the kind of big question is: Will President Xi be granted his third term? I think there is little doubt that he will. Professor Bill Hurst, you know Bill from um, right. Deputy Director of the Center for Geopolitics, has written a piece for the center's website this week, giving his predictions of how that's likely to play out. In both China and Russia, there's a really interesting generational question because she is 69, President Putin is 70, I think he's 70. Um, so they are now getting older. As we all know, Ali, you may disagree, but I think that as as men get older, they get a little bit angrier <laughs> and a little bit more intent on achieving their objectives. Um, but there is also that question about the next generation, so the next generation down are are you know fifty year olds whose whose time has probably come. So so how do they manage that shift
0: or sort of transition?
1: Yeah, because there has to be a transition. For, fortu-
0: fortunately, in Iran, we have no sort of age requirement. They seem to go on and on until really they they um, reach their natural end. I think,
1: which is another question. I think because the ayatollah is not well.
0: No, that's right. He's not well. And I mean, he's in his 80s. And, you know, the succession issue is something that's going to be very, you know, we've discussed that before in previous podcasts. But I I think things are, are generally coming to a head, which is quite interesting.
1: So what we thought we would do today is rather than give answers to all these uncertainties, we would discuss the means by which one seeks to provide answers to uncertainties, that's or right. even better, the means by which one accepts that there are uncertainties and learns how to adapt oneself that's to right. the uncertainties with a view to making things essentially pan out more like we want them to than, right. than they might otherwise. And how, we, how we
0: can be better prepared, I suppose. Is, how is we idea. can be
1: better prepared um, for whatever happens next um, and ideally, well, no, because that's still passive. Ideally, how we can somehow change what happens next so that it's less bad.
0: Yeah, uh, good that's point. the good point.
1: absurdly <laughs> ambitious objective of this podcast. And Ali, I think you're going to start, aren't you, by talking about how you do that? Using well, yes. History.
0: I mean, I I was going to to look at it from obviously a, a historian's perspective. Of course, historians are famous for saying that you know we we don't do predictions. Uh, It's much safer not doing predictions because most often than not, it it turns out wrong. But as you say, it's a question of really laying out what we imagine would be scenarios going forward and what we think would be realistic uh, outcomes. So, you know, policy planners and others can be a little bit better, you know, more better prepared for what's for what's coming. And I think one of, one of the interesting things for me, I suppose, um, in any historical experience is that we always tend to be fighting the last war, don't we? We always mm-hmm. tend to look at, say, everyone sort of looks at the Islamic revolution in Iran in 1979 and expects a repeat of that performance, you know, almost sort of um, uh, carbon copy, which of course is just not going to happen. I mean, that's just not the way things happen. I mean, it, it, yeah. And um, Iran has uh, many... Uh, popular political other uprisings that you can choose from and, and I think look at and I often say that if you look back a bit further to to paraphrase I think it's Churchill isn't it, it says the further back you look the for, further forward you can project nice little phrase that and uh you' I'm know, not
1: sure how <laughs> no, maybe <laughs> but it's yeah. very
0: useful for historians you see because yeah. it means medieval historians can be very very uh very useful all of a sudden but the um you know for me certainly uh, the, the the bigger the context the bigger the the sort of historical landscape you can explore uh the better an idea you might have and I uh, you know again these are these are very sort of uh, conditional sort of uh, uh issues but the better idea you might have of of, of potential ways forward and if you you know, in Iran, in particular, I've written about this. You know, if you if you look at the various different uh, historical and even sort of literary uh, examples of popular revolt, not just Muslim ones, but Iranian sort of narratives and others, it gives you a, a slightly different idea about what people, what what you know, how people might behave. So that's one thing. And then, of course, you know, being as the other phrase that I very much like, the archaeology of knowledge, as 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 a French thinker, I think once said. Um, the we're always sort of picking, you know, our problem is that we have limited evidence, don't we? We're we're, we're not we don't have full uh, information, all the information we want. We never have all the information we want, so we're, we're we're sort of filling in the gaps. So the way I've tried to do it in looking at Iran is is bringing together both a, a, an understanding of the historical experience and then filling the gaps with certain conceptual sort of models of of how states change and political change, economic change. And that's the way, I suppose, I come to a a conclusion um, and some thoughts about where Iran uh, may or may not go. But, of course, it requires, I suppose, that thing which, you know, I think we all need to be uh, a a little bit braver about, and that's sort of unorthodox thinking, I suppose, you know, thinking out of the box and not being dictated by certain i don't know um standard narratives of historical development that um you know that we think apply i mean i remember having debates with colleagues who were essentially social scientists i should say not to not to be rude about social scientists but um you know had a sort of a tick box uh, model of, of what is required for a state to change and of course some of this might be useful of course it's a useful framework of how to think but i don't think it should necessarily dictate because you know all these models Clearly, change when we look at the experience. I mean, I, I don't know how you know. I don't know what you're. You, you know, you've obviously had a much more hands-on, and you know, you're much more in a policy framework. So, I'd love to know how you sort of like were able to try and handle these things.
1: Well, I think you you've, that last um, point um, is a really interesting yeah. one. Essentially, how do you predict instability or a spontaneous? Uh, you know, when when will a spontaneous movement of people that's right become something which then does that's right change the government of a country, I suppose, or change you know when when does a re- how does a revolution happen? And if you read actually mm. John Reed's mm. book, Ten Days That Shook the World, which is about the Russian Revolution, he so he was there at the time, nothing was fixed at the start of those 10 days everyone Lenin wasn't even Lenin, was it Trotsky no I'm it? confused one of them wasn't yeah. even in the country and 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 I had to sort of rush back and and one of them sorry though really should know but um there was so many competing revolutionary organizations they really didn't that's right know that this was the moment but they thought if this is the moment let's seize it and, and they just managed to get that momentum that, that carried them through. And I think we used to look always at, at countries of risk of instability mm. in, my, in my former life and say, well, let's look across the world and where, we, where do we think is most unstable? Mm. That was never really a very good way of looking, even if so you had a whole load of different indices. But if you're looking for instability, it was actually an um, American had said to me, "Don't forget that the the, the strongest right. regimes, right. yeah. that the most rigid countries, are also the most brittle." And so you can be yeah. essentially a chaotic mm. country, so permanently unstable, but stable in your <laughs> in your permanent instability. <laughs> and there's lots of countries like that. So one might even say, but there are there are these right. you know strongly authoritarian regimes which are brittle. At a certain moment. And so they will then suddenly break. And the way that they break is so dramatic. So you could argue, this may be controversial, but you could argue that the, one of the reasons that what happened after um, the US and its allies invaded Iraq in 2003, the reason that Iraq collapsed so completely and was impossible to put back together was mm. precisely because Saddam Hussein's rule had been so authoritarian that all the governance structures collapsed and and it couldn't be put back together again. So so we're looking essentially, we're now talking about particularly Russia and and Iran, where we are now seeing um mm. you know actually more in Iran than in Russia, but we're seeing kind of popular mobilization, young people on the streets, and we're saying is this a tipping point? Sure. Might something be different? And it's as you just said, it's impossible to know from this point what's going to happen next. Uh, you've written, though, very interestingly for Engelsberg Ideas this week, where you do actually—I mean, in a way, you hedge your bets still, but you do say this is this is the start of something, don't you?
0: Well, I mean, my I mean, where, where I cheat a bit, I have to say, is that um, you know I've been thinking that the the situation in the Islamic Republic has been unsustainable for some time. So it's not even, and I it's not even so much. I think the current situation is the start of anything. I think it's just a sort of a continuation down a path that has a logical conclusion, which is not very which which is which which is not in the islamic republic's favor if i can put it that way that's not to say that the the immediate outcome of what's going to happen in of the current protests is going to result in anything pleasant i mean i i think i think i also say in that that there may be light at the end of the tunnel but it's a, it's a very long tunnel yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, people have to be aware of that because there's a lot of excitement, I think, certainly among opposition groups, uh, certainly abroad and others who, who feel that something imminent is about to happen. And I think we have to be uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, wary of what history tells us. You know, the, the demonstrations in 2009 that were vast after the sort of the, the highly contentious and, in my view, fraudulent election of 2009 Resulted in demonstrations over a period of six months. You know, very widespread, very violent, as far as we could see, and yet ultimately they petered out and they were contained. Now the difference, I think, now is that um, you know the 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 popular protest is not really about political reform. I mean, I, I I think by the end of the protests in 2009, people had moved away. From the belief that um, the Islamic Republic was capable of internal reform. But certainly that was a process. I mean, that was a process that took place over the six months. I think now people have entered <laughs> into the demonstrations with a view that they don't like what they see, you know, and they're their 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 arguing for change. The trouble is, of course, is that you know how politically organized these protests are. I mean, I, I also wrote a, a piece and I about, you know, how the British in particular assessed the the fall of the Shah, you know, in 1978. And it's fascinating to see actually how you know, when you look at the the, the dispatches coming from uh, the British Embassy in Tehran back to the Foreign Office, you know through seventy eight, how it only really, very slowly dawned on people that something significant politically was taking shape. You know, we tend to read in history books now. um it's a bit of a cliche, and I hate it, to be honest, but it, it's a cliche. They say, you know, the Islamic Revolution in Iran began on the eighth of January. 1978 with an article in a newspaper, blah, blah, blah. And it's all very neat and tidy and rather nice. Of course, the interesting thing is, is when you look at the contemporary documents, nobody noticed. I mean, (laughs) nobody gave two hoots about this. I mean, some people know, but they didn't think it was significant. You know, what is it? How do we, in a sense, as analysts, really looking at this in real time, decide what is significant and what isn't? And that that for me is fascinating. You know, I mean, that's why I, I think, you know, it's, I always say to colleagues who are more in the policy side of things that we shouldn't kick ourselves for not predicting things because revolutions are inherently unpredictable. I mean, otherwise, if we could always predict them, you know, uh, at least cleanly, let's say, you know, it, it wouldn't be the surprise that, you know, the revolutionary surprise that it is.
1: Obviously, Ali, this is a subject close to my heart. Yes, absolutely. You know that <laughs> I think that we are enthralled to mm. prediction and forecasting. Yeah. And my personal view is that the Philip Tetlock super forecasting thing, where essentially you can set a computer game, uh, or you know, you bring people together yeah. in an abstract way and ask them a whole set of questions about what the future is going to look like. And some people are better at it than others is a terrible way to go about it if i'm honest because it's almost saying everything can somehow be reduced to an algorithm it, and of course the really unpredictable things are never going to be thrown up by the algorithm because the algorithm is working on the basis of patterns that it's seen before that's right so yeah, you have good to point. you have to find a way so so for me i would love it if we could stop talking about predicting and forecasting and horizon scanning to me, it's no good saying, what's Iran going to look like in five years' time? Right. You know, it, it, We have no idea. It's a waste of time trying to say, what would be better to do is essentially what you're talking about, which is monitoring it on a daily basis and investing in the people who are watching how it's changing on a daily basis so that exactly as you're saying, exactly at that point mm. where something happens. Mm. It's not that nobody's noticed it you know when you go back and nobody really realized what was happening because yeah. you actually have a whole load of people who are noticing it and talking about it and trying to work out what it means all the time and I think what's changed in the modern age is that we we kind of do have that we have this yeah. massive open source thing on particularly on Twitter where people are analyzing everything. But they're still stuck in, um, they're either analysing without any ability to do anything about anything. So you want to be able to make sure that that analysis is feeding back into the people who, who could decide something. Or they're analysing still in this sort of passive vacuum so to say, well, let's, let's predict what's going to happen next. And my, my, what I like to think is my killer point is that obviously nothing in the future is fixed. So mm. what happens next? Depends not only on, it's not enough just to say, what is Putin going to do? But we should also be saying, what are the actions that others might take that will affect what Putin does? And that, of course, includes the actions of whatever amalgam of actors you want to say, you know, the West, is that the EU, is it NATO, is it America, is it individual nations doing different things? It's also actions that China and India and The Middle East might take vis-a-vis Russia in terms of the support they're giving or the messages that they're sending. All of those things affect what happens next. So, a suggestion that you can just conjure out of thin air a prediction is lunacy.
0: Uh, from my no, I mean, I, I think and it's it an excellent happen. point. <laughs> no, it's an excellent point because because one is that we don't, and I'm, you know, I. so what I do is basically I look at a particular environment and I, you know, obviously I'm looking at Iran. I mean, other people will be looking at Russia, Ukraine, other things, you know, China, what the hell is China being up to? And, and we, we tend to look at these in a very sort of isolated manner without really looking at all the host of other. Um, events and interventions, or non-interventions, if you will, that that might affect that. And I think that's quite right. I mean, I don't, in in that sense, you know, you're highlighting. I think something which is very important, and uh, which I think some of my colleagues might might um, uh, digest a bit better, is just the sheer complexity of this process of working out what or might or might not happen. And I agree that this idea of uh, you know forecut. I mean, I found it very frustrating where people sort of like you know, certainly, you know, for instance, after the revolution in Iran, there was a huge amount of sort of self-reflection. I mean, the Americans were constantly sort of beating themselves up about how we didn't predict it. We didn't do that. And I think that, you know, there is uh, room, as I think, you know, obviously we did in, in this country with the Brown report on, uh, on, on, on the lessons of the Islamic revolution. There was obviously a huge amount of room for reflection and seeing what can be done better. But I don't think there's much merit in kicking yourself and not actually having predicted it um what you can do is just improve the processes i suppose as you say where you know you're you're able to assess it and i you know one of the things that i i suppose i've thought about and i'm thinking at the top of my head here really but you know you're talking you know about how this continuous analysis of digital media and social media and others but i suppose in one way you know one of the things that worries me is that actually we're not getting as much thoughtful analysis as we might because everyone's in a rush to get some sort of point out everyone wants to sort of like um sort of know what's going to happen and and uh it it, it's all a bit too rapid fire isn't it i mean the next week you know things could change again and you'll suddenly find that that op-ed or whatever that was written or that 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 comment is 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 reversed you know it's got a very short uh shelf life unfortunately
1: well i've been obviously ali i've been writing quite a lot and i having come from uh, you know a a government assessment background my strongly held view is that all nations and all all organisations of nations with a shared objective need to properly invest in the bit at the centre which does the thinking yeah and that is i mean actually you know banks have it in different ways because they think about different things but but and governments have it they have assessment and analysis capabilities they tend to be not terribly well understood and under-resourced but as you're saying if things are changing so quickly all over the place. You have to have a means by which you receive your information into a, into one place. You you sort it, you filter it, and you think about it, and you and you track how things are changing because it's you can only spot the the sort of outlier event that's a clue that something's going to happen. You can only spot that if you're tracking all the other events. Yeah. So there is there isn't a shortcut. Doing that, you have to invest in assessment and analysis, which is which is watching everything, and then can then say, oh, that thing which happened last week in Okuts, for example, mm. random example, that's that's an outlier. That might mean something, and then you start to watch it and you say, well, well, what might, what might it mean, and what might be the other things that we can look for that might also give us a clue that something's happening, and then you can start also to have the conversation, which says, if these things are happening what might we do that might change what's happening affect in a way it. if affect it in a way that that we think is is the right way to affect it and obviously that's a whole other debate but i found um i'm going to give you a little example because sure. i think people get really muddled yeah and the example about why collectively the west the eu didn't act before Russia invaded Ukraine. Or it didn't really act. It talked a bit, but it didn't really act, is is a really interesting one because yeah. essentially you did have from October, November last year, you had, particularly from the US and UK, you had briefings saying Vladimir Putin's going to invade Ukraine. And they went to the EU. I, they showed them all sorts of information. I have no special knowledge about that, but there's a nice story in Bloomberg which reported that the US had briefed the EU that Russia was considering an invasion of Ukraine. And the briefing was based on information which had not been shared with European governments. Yeah. And the EU said that this information would have to be shared before any decision could be taken on a collective response. So, immediately, you have this difficulty of building baseline understanding of what the threat might be, because it's inconceivable that the Americans are going to say, right, well, we're going to share with 27 countries Absolutely. some really sensitive information. <laughs> and, and the, but the fact that you can't even persuade closest allies to accept your word it is a problem in terms of then forming a basis for what you're going to do next. And I think that the confusion at the heart of this is that people are mistrustful of American or British intelligence because they say well you were wrong before in Iraq or you might have another motive mm. therefore but that's confusing two completely separate concepts because yeah. the question on Iraq was does saddam hussein have weapons of mass destruction to which the answer is yes or no
0: yeah it's a very factual
1: it's a very factual yeah. it's it's a it's it's an assertion of an already existing state of affairs the question on will Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine mm-hmm. is a question of intent. So we we know what his capabilities are. The question is is it's he motivation. Going, is yeah. he going to do it? So so this is about this is why for me predicting and forecasting are so unhelpful, because the question comes down to whether or not we believe that it's a possibility. And if we believe it's a possibility, then we need to consider what we're going to do now to stop it from happening. So and, and that would have to be an effective deterrent response, so which would change Putin's risk calculus. So there was nowhere I could see in October and November last year where there was a proper conversation before it happened that said, what would we need to do to stop it happening? And so the West then became as it always is, I'm afraid I believe, essentially a responsive actor so so it responds to things that have been done by others rather than setting those. and i think that is it is precisely because we are enthralled to forecasting and prediction rather than action
0: but didn't it reflect perhaps i mean another thing that there was a there was a narrative an embedded narrative in a way in, in a number of european capitals that basically built over i don't know decades i suppose maybe two two decades that essentially you know this policy of um hugging russia close was 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 the right way to go and therefore the the evidence that putin might you know invade ukraine was going to completely shatter this this model that they they'd built up so i suppose in some ways the intelligence was um forcing them rather awkwardly to review a, a, a sort of a a, a well embedded sort of understanding i mean it, they, you know that was their not so much intelligence but uh, a perspective a very well embedded sort of policy perspective that they had
1: yes i suppose you could say when my question mm. if we believe that this is a possibility what yeah. do we need to and and i suppose what you're saying is that um such was the strongly held beliefs mm. of something else that it simply wasn't possible to persuade people that it was a possibility but then that says Not very many good things about the shared understanding of the threat uh, at that time across Europe. We were talking yesterday, Ali, you and I Mm. were at a conference Conference. at the um, Changing Character of War Centre in Oxford, which was really interesting. And I thought there was a um, fascinating insight that I hadn't really fully factored in from Dima Adamski, who said Russia has invested its thoughts into how best to inflict a surprise on an enemy. And less on how to recover from surprises. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing now. Yeah, so, you know, really Russia's, interesting. Russia's reeling because it's not very adaptive. And and my observation was that the West, essentially by which I mean, you know, the UK, US, uh, the Anglosphere, the EU, um, does the opposite. So it's very rare for us, through our transparent, consensus based decision making processes, to take a decision to do something unexpected or surprising, and, and I mean, in fact, we feel well, really un- we feel fact. really uncomfortable with ourselves yeah. when we do such as so the Orca's deal. Um, yeah. There was a huge backlash because we'd done something that had surprised the French, at, which, right. which is just not done. You know, I
0: know.
1: Um, <laughs> But uh, but what actually? And then I was thinking about it a little more. I think we are conversely, we are much better at responding, so we are more adaptive to um To surprises, mm. so we might not be the surprises, but we're we're better at when we are surpri- we're so used to being surprised that we have actually evolved a system which enables us to respond in a in a more in a more agile way um, but it struck me that 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 is that is a psychological difference and and Shashank Joshi was asking last night you know if there's a debate at the moment about whether Russia might decide to use a tactical nuclear, nuclear weapon. Yeah. And, and Shashank was, was asking, given this Russian sort of tactical behavior essentially to, to surprise rather than, you. Know, maybe we're thinking about it all wrong because we're constantly trying to look for the next a- escalatory step, but maybe we should just be prepared for the fact that their MO is, is to surprise us mm. so we might not get all the information that we might need before something happens. I don't know what you think about that.
0: No, no, I think I think that's probably right. I mean, of course, you know they have the advantage of you know autocratic or author, authoritarian systems have the advantage of being able to keep things a little bit more shielded than we might have. I mean, I think our problem in the West is is the abundance of leaks. To be honest, I mean, it's so difficult to keep things actually really under wraps for 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 very long. And as you quite rightly say, you know the experience of Orca's, you know, which is basically a you know it was a a military commercial deal i mean it wasn't you know we weren't doing anything too dramatic and yet you know people were quite shocked you know that uh, we should be keeping this sort of under commercial wraps or whatever um but i think you know i think that's definitely a, a, an issue and and of course what people like putin and others can do is by by playing on this issue of surprise is is uh, leverage a huge amount you know against us in a sense because you know what weaknesses they have they can they can maximize it by basically not letting us know where they might what they might do or strike you know next uh, so it's quite it's it's much more um in a sense um you know they have a degree of agility that we don't have and uh uh that makes life more complicated i mean the other thing i wanted to say you know from my example is that uh the experience of <laughs> iran certainly is as you say this sort of idea of belief and and, and understanding i mean i've been quite struck you know for instance that even this week you know that the level of surprise there's been among people about you know what's going on in iran and the way women are treated i mean i was very surprised to find that a number of people were quite shocked you know that women were treated badly in iran um and i did think to myself you know what how is that how is that and of course you know i think for a good you know eight years um people have certainly those who don't spend a huge amount of time looking at iran um have been you know the, the face of iran has been you know the 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 uh, very loquacious, Javad Zarif, you know, and others who who speak very fluently, and others and uh, engage very, in, you know, um, very constructively in some ways with their Western interlocutors, and that's the image they gain. So therefore, they 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 didn't really it didn't really click to them that actually what you're seeing in Iran is a regime that's actually. You know, for want of a better term, it's actually pretty misogynistic. I mean, it's not. You know, it, um, it, it, this is not a this is not a sort of a, a, a liberal country, um, and certainly not in its current configuration. Um, so it's uh, you know it's, it was interesting, sort of puncturing some of the the, the assumptions which people had built up certain narratives, um, and that had framed their understanding. So when the evidence came to the contrary it took a bit of time for them to adjust. And I suspect this was the same, really. I mean, it was a really major issue to realise that Putin was perhaps not the warm, cuddly Russian that we thought he might be. I mean, I know a lot of people obviously realised he wasn't, but they didn't really accept how far he might go. Apart from, it has to be said, Eastern Europeans, who were fairly yeah. on the ball, I have to say, weren't they? I mean, they, they, well,
1: they know they're on they, the front line. <laughs> their perspective is very different because they've lived... I mean, the, the thing the thing that we've learnt ali uh, that ukraine uh, has has brought home to us all so vividly is the relevance of history to what happens now yeah and i've been really struck through conversations with europeans this summer of all shapes and sizes of how much it's made them think about their own families yeah. you know journey yeah. through the 20th century and of course, we are we're the people alive now we won't we don't remember the second world war mm. we don't remember all of this, but we've all got a sense of where we were rooted in it and that does even if you don't even if you really consciously don't want it yeah. to it does nonetheless give you a sense of what your where your feet should be now yeah. and I think that's why it's so difficult to in germany the debate is so difficult because they they genuinely still are trying to work out all of those issues trying to trying to really I mean, it's only been 30 years since unification the people who lived in east germany had a very very different relationship with russia mm-hmm. different so that question that you're raising now is like how do you understand what has become the enemy yeah. or the adversary and and I think um, Elizabeth Braw wrote something really interesting, saying, you know, there's an awful lot of people in East Germany who understand Russia, who you know, who who went on study exchanges when they're at school, who you know, they really understand yeah. Russia, um, but but in a different way. And so we all, we're all trying to work all of that out, and it's not straightforward. But I think I suppose all I would say is um, let's not try and work it out by just sitting there saying what what do we predict is going to happen next. Um, can I finish with a with an observation yes, about the future? <laughs> I suppose so. Um, and this is the this is the paradox of good prediction. Mm. So good prediction will always seem to be wrong because nothing in the future is fixed. Right. And the best analysis, if you're doing this properly, enables swift decisions which change the outcome. So the best if if a prediction has has takes the shape of a warning, yeah. essentially a warning of something bad rather than something good. But if you're trying to warn that something might happen, the best predictions look like false alarms because they have been fed into a decision-making process that then has a proper conversation about what action needs to be taken to stop it happening. So then it it doesn't happen, and and then you can say, well, you know, you were wrong when you said that Russia was going to collapse because it didn't, or yeah. whatever it is. And and on Ukraine, so all the predictions which say, is Ukraine going to take more territory or not? Is it going to be a bloody stalemate or not? Actually, action taken by Ukraine and the degree of useful support it receives will determine exactly how far and how quickly Russia can be pushed back. So you get some military analysis, which is providing situation updates, which enable these adjustments and you have observation and intelligence, which indicate what are Russia's strategic vulnerabilities. And you have diplomatic reporting and security partnerships, which give insight into the posture of allied countries. And then you need to think: Well, now we know mm-hmm. where we are. What What do we need to do to change what happens next? Yeah. And um, you know, I think we should be aiming for something where alliances of countries are greater than the sum of yeah. their parts so that they are thinking collectively, so they are capable of, of taking collective action, which then does essentially change the outcome, which in this case obviously would, I would argue, involve providing more support to Ukraine now yeah. to get ahead of the Russian mobilization when that starts really to kick in, which will be next spring.
0: Well, I think that's a good way to end this, uh, this return. <laughs> this return to the uh, to the On Geopolitics uh, podcast. But I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I hope we can, uh, maybe with the uh, help of guests going forward, uh, maybe discuss this, you know, um, in a little further and explore the different uh, ways in which we can perhaps enhance capabilities and so on and so forth, as you sort of outlined now. Um, I think it's a fascinating part. I'm going
1: to predict, that I, I'm going to predict that it's going to be an exciting autumn right. and maybe that's a terrible word it's going to be an eventful eventful autumn and we need to be on our guard in more uh, ways
0: than one watching
1: (laughs) watching constantly uh, observing and
0: ready I think that's absolutely right and I hope our listeners will uh, accompany us uh, while we we explore some of these things Um, so um, until next time uh, it's bye from me
1: and goodbye from me